Welcome to the Block and Tackle Show, hosted by Carl Block. Carl is a partner in the law firm of Loeb & Loeb here in Los Angeles, California. He will be tackling some of the biggest issues in business today. Listen, learn, and enjoy as he leaves no stone unturned during deep conversations with some of today's most amazing business leaders. Welcome to the show. Carl Block is both a corporate lawyer and a corporate restructuring partner in the Los Angeles office of Loeb & Loeb LLP. Nothing in the podcast should be construed as legal advice. To the extent legal issues are discussed, please consult an attorney if you have any questions or need advice relating to the matters discussed. This podcast may constitute attorney advertising in certain jurisdictions. The views expressed in the podcast are not necessarily the views of Loeb & Loeb or Carl Block. Carl and each guest reserves the right to change any opinions that may be expressed on the show and disagree with what others say, even if such disagreement is not expressed during the podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Block and Tackle Show. Today, we're very privileged to have Rich Williams, a serial CEO entrepreneur, and marketing expert. Rich is the founder of Works Capital and CEO of The Value Studio, where he invests in and advises technology companies and works closely with partners and portfolio companies of private equity and late-stage venture firms. During the pandemic, he was the CEO and sponsor of the Alcurry Global Acquisition Corp. He succeeded in raising $575 million in capital in connection with a DSPAC transaction so that the entity acquired was listed on the New York Stock Exchange. This was Rich's third IPO. Prior to that, he served as CEO of Groupon from 2015 to 2020. He helped countless small businesses thrive while building one of the most recognized brands online with nearly 90% awareness, 100 million plus unique visitors monthly, and 1.5 billion plus Groupons sold. He has led a successful restructure of a company and refocused on local services and established a sustained cost structure, among other things. As a result of his efforts at the restructure, he returned a core business back to double-digit growth while adding over 100 million of annual AEBITDA with strong free cash flow. Rich, delighted to have you here today on the Block and Tackle Show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Carl. No worries. So, Rich, let's start off with, you know, your most recent gigs, Works Capital and Value Studio. Tell us what the backstory is and, you know, what you're doing and what the value add is in addition to investing. Sure. Uh, happy to do it. I think, uh, look, uh, coming into the, the early part of 2020, um, I just thought I was going to retire um, and just decompress, take some time off. Um, I found probably six weeks in that that sounded better than it actually was. I, I uh, in many ways, just been really fortunate in my career to just in, to just enjoy what I do. I, I've never really kind of woke up in the morning and said, oh, geez, I have to go to the office again um, or I have to work on this stuff again. And, and I for sure found that I missed the just the connectivity to, to solving interesting business problems and challenges and working with smart people. Um, so the, the value studio in particular kind of came out of that wanting to do, still wanting to stay connected to, to business, not wanting to jump back into a, just another operating role or another corporate job. Um, 
And uh, Value Studio became you know, that entry point for me, just basically you know, doing strategic consulting and advisory work, as I mentioned, mostly around um, private equity companies, um, their portfolio companies, um, and venture, you know, mostly late stage venture capital companies, um, helping them solve interesting business challenges for their portfolio companies or folks that they were looking to either invest in or acquire. Um, the works capital part um, came came a little bit later than that. It's, it's you know part of that some of that other work in the value studio. I just I was seeing a lot of companies that had a lot of deal flow coming through, um, and had opportunities to invest in in some of the companies that I was reviewing. And so that really became my investment vehicle uh, that I started with a, a longtime colleague uh, and, and close friend of mine named Steve Krenzer, um, where we just we started to invest and and. Um, that's and we still do today, or at least mostly. It's uh, I'm, I'm probably doing more of it than anything else these days. Um, mostly looking at vertical software companies, um, some marketplaces, and you know some, of course, in consumer. We get, we get lots of looks on things in there, but early stage companies, um, places where we feel we can make a difference outside of the check sizes that we we can we can produce, which are really small. Um, let's get to your uh, question on value add for me and really for Steve, we're operators. So our value add isn't, isn't going to be the size of the check. We're not, we're not writing $50 million checks to people. Um, what we are bringing is people is with pattern recognition and big networks of folks with pattern recognition, um, for what it takes to, to scale companies and scale them successfully. Um, and a lot of that's because we've seen it, uh, we've seen it done in the wrong way, we've made a bunch of mistakes ourselves and have some of that scar tissue and, and uh, can help people avoid some of the potholes of, uh, of growth and, and the challenges that come along with building great companies. So I see a commonality in both of these gigs of yours. And one is that it's not just money that helps, although I know, you know, on one side of the business, you're really just consulting private equity and venture company funds. But the coin of the realm is really operating expertise. And so I, I'm seeing this in a pattern of how do you differentiate yourself, for example, from other kinds of consultants. And it's not just that you put your own money in, it's that you've actually been there and been on the front lines and seen that. And I would imagine there are some companies who are thinking to themselves, I just want the biggest check I can get. But there's other companies maybe with founders who say, hey, I'm smart enough to know what I don't know and I don't know everything. And here's a couple of guys between Rich and Steve who actually have not just talked the talk, but walked the walk. And so they can actually do enormous value adds. Yeah. I mean, they must tell you that. You must get that kind of feedback. Yes, for sure. I, I think there's uh, this is like a classic. There's two kinds of people in the world um, when it comes to people who fundraise. And I, I think there's people who fundraise in bulk and will take take the biggest or take take what they can get, take the most they can get. And then there's people that are really strategic in how they fundraise. And and they'll it's the folks that make room for people like like me um, and check sizes that I write mostly because they value who's around the table um, and they they're thinking, how do how can these people accelerate me, not just in in my balance sheet, but how can they help me solve problems? Because I, I don't know. I don't know what you call, but I, I've never seen uh, an easy business. I've never seen a business that hits the J curve of growth and and it's it's just hunky dory and things just happen beautifully every day and execution's perfect. Um, that process is just thorny. And I think the really strategic ones um, 
place a huge premium on on just that, again, a pattern recognition, been there, done that, um, people that they can use as resources and, um, you know, and, and have different kinds of perspectives, uh, hands on the dials kinds of perspectives versus theoretical conversations that, that lots of people can have. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, I see this as a trend. And look, as you know, the size of companies you're investing in, a lot of them are founders who've never been in leadership positions before. They've never run a railroad. They may have a concept that may be really good. They may have vetted the concept with people that they know, maybe some rudimentary marketing analysis, but they don't know how to run a railroad and you do. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, and Steve obviously knows about internal controls, which is also helpful. But I, I see, you know, like you said, there's, you know, there's different philosophies and you're a great match for one than the other. I would, you know, there's no study I've seen that says, okay, the people that chose the Rich and Steve type people, what was their success rate afterwards versus the people who just got the biggest check? I have my suspicions, of course, yeah. but we'll I, I've never seen, <laughs> but you've probably seen lots of stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's right. Um you know, our, our story is still, is still very early and we're really, we're really small and, um, we'll, we'll see what our success rate is ultimately, but, you know, so far we've been really pleased with how we've been able to help entrepreneurs. Um, and, and I, I think you call out a really interesting point, and this is something that I'm seeing change quite a bit. It's not just the, uh, I don't know if you, if you type in entrepreneur and in, in Google, you probably get something like an, if you did an image, you'd probably see some 20 something person, um, young, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. I, 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 that's starting to change. You're starting to get more gray hair moving into the entrepreneurial realms. And, and I think there's, there's kind of a distinct thing that, that we've seen shift is you actually now do have some folks that have pattern recognition for excellence at scale that are starting companies. What not enough people have is, is experience on the path to scale where they've been, they've actually built it from, dollar one to dollar billion and one and, and beyond. And there's there's just not enough of those people out there yet who have who have that, not just know what good looks like, but they know how to build the bridge from where they are today to where to where they can be really good when they're really big. Um, and, and we have that experience. I think we've been, again, very, very fortunate. I've worked in those single digit millions companies that have that have grown to be over a billion dollars in five years. And I've worked at the billion dollar company that got to be over $5 billion in a couple of years. Uh, and then I've worked at the 50, $70 billion company that has become now, whatever, a $500 billion company. Um, so I think we, we just have a, an ability to, to thread that I think has been helpful for a lot of folks. Um, and I, you know, I think we just need more of that. We need more of that experience out there. And in the interim, you know, at least Steve and I are helping out the ways we can. Sure. Besides people who may have the gray hair or some idea, some idea about how to run a railroad, um, but are lacking really the secret sauce to scale up. What other things do you see with your entrepreneurs that they're struggling with? What other sort of business challenges? And of course, maybe to some degree it's liquidity, but what other things too are you seeing where they could benefit from stuff that you and Steve do? Yeah, I mean, you you said liquidity. It is right at lots of people's minds, even companies that don't have um distinct liquidity challenges it's on their minds they can't they can't help not think about it which i i think is a is it's in itself something that has um has challenged a lot of entrepreneurs even some very successful companies 
um, that have plenty of money on the balance sheet, um, they just didn't have to worry about it before. They didn't even have to think about the future fundraising environments, which they're having to start to think about now. And that's requiring them to, to flex different kinds of muscles at the same time. They're, they're having to think, still think big, think, have that entrepreneurial vision and that view for, for how you can change the world, but having to be disciplined operators and build repeatability, build scalability, build sustainable cost structures um, because they can't guarantee a fundraise in 18 months. I mean, I've seen, I've seen fundraises now taken up to a year. So the old adage of like, you need 24 months of cover or 18 months of, of burn and that stuff, like even amazing companies, like there's a company that we're involved with is, uh, has just grown like a weed, is profitable pre-series A, that raising capital for that business was not a no-brainer. Whereas before, I mean, literally two years ago, people would have been just throwing bags of money at this company. And so I think that bimodal nature of that, that one factor is really is really stretching a lot of entrepreneurs because they were rewarded for just having the big idea and showing the big top line. And now they're having to still bring that vision to the table, but do it with discipline. And that's I think that's a big struggle for folks, for sure. That makes sense. Uh, again, you know, if it's it goes back what to what you said, if they've never been in a situation where they needed it before. Not everybody can naturally do it or adjust on the fly. So we're going to come back to a little bit of stuff about company building in a sec. But, you know, what's interesting to to me uh, also about what you're doing is, you know, you were at Groupon, you ran Groupon, and then, you know, you end up segueing from that into healthcare and you're a sponsor, you know, with Alcuri. And you end up raising 575 million bucks and, and do a DSPAC transaction and have a company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So how does a guy who is, um, you know, in a consumer tech related business <laughs> find himself in healthcare and is able to do what he needed to do to generate a successful result? I mean, that has to be a good story. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a fascinating stretch for sure a great learning experience for me because to your point I, I don't all i knew moving into that from health, like from the healthcare side of things was that um healthcare was just hard just as an individual as a consumer of healthcare um and my wife would like me to be probably a bigger consumer of healthcare than i am it's just hard it's not as accessible it seems too expensive it's just a lot of red tape it's not modernized so a lot of the things that i was thinking about in that in that consumer business to try to you know bring some more technology even to the local services world, healthcare wasn't fundamentally all that different in a lot of ways, at least from that consumer interface. Um, but and, I mean, and anyway, I think the, the bigger piece though, like how uh, what I found in that process, and I've seen across now working with dozens of companies um, over this last little stretch, is um, like building technology companies isn't all that different you know, from, from category to category, like the, the things that a healthcare, a health tech CEO thinks about, it's just not wildly different um, from what a FinTech uh, CEO is thinking about, or what a consumer internet CEO is thinking about. They're trying to build long-term sustainability in their business model. They're trying to build competitive differentiation. They're trying to build great cultures and great businesses and teams, um, especially moving into the public markets. They're, they're looking for repeatability and predictability in their business. Um, 
you know, you, for sure, I had to come up to speed really rapidly on, on the regulatory environment surrounding healthcare. Um, but when the time that I was spending really working with those companies was really, how can I be helpful for these CEOs as they move from being a private CEO to, you know, in some cases, a much larger public CEO? Um, and, and the things that they were worried about every single day were the things that I was worrying about, you know, six years before, seven years before. Um, so I, I made my transition into the space really easy. Um, and I also surrounded myself with, with people who knew that space like the back of their hands so that, so that I could draft off their knowledge base, learn really quickly. Um, and I was willing to just get into the details um, and really push my knowledge base um, while I was leaning on the other stuff that I just had that was more natural and that was so similar to the things that I thought about as just a CEO of, a, of another public tech company. It's interesting that you say that. I've uh, I've talked to a number of people who feel like if you have the great CEO skills, you don't necessarily have to be a specialist in one particular industry segment. If you have people around them who can around you who can ha actually help you with whatever the unique vagaries are of a particular industry, but if you if you know what it what it means to be the captain of the ship and and how to how to actually run it you're you uh you definitely are at a great advantage so since you've had a couple of ipo situations and you know there's a lot of companies who are you know maybe even as early as series a they're thinking about it but you know companies that are growing what what do you tell them about ipos there's a lot of entrepreneurs who think to themselves i'm going to create a company or i'm going to get into a company i'm going to build it i'm going to ipo it I'm going to exit. I'm going to be wealthy. What is it that you would say to companies who are thinking, hey, I could see that one of my exits is going to be an IPO, you know, from the CEO's perspective, what would you say to them? Yeah, I, I would say to them first, the, the path to the greatest exit goes through building the, building the best company you can build. Um, like the mode of exit is not the thing to focus on. And, and, and if you do, or if you're committed, it's a box some, for some reason you feel you have to check, um, wait as long as humanly possible to go public. And it's, it's not because it's bad. It's just that the, the, the strain that it can put, not just on that, that individual leader, the, the company itself, the, what you have to do as a public CEO, your job changes. You went from, a certain kind of governance and management of just not only your your day-to-day -day job and your team, how you communicate with your employees, how much data you can share, then how much predictability you have to have. I mean, it just it it's a different job. And in order to to make that job uh, that transition smooth and manageable, you you need to have you need to have a lot of scaffolding set up in the business and a lot of predictability that a lot of companies just frankly don't have as they're looking at that exit point. Um, and so I think it's one of those careful what you ask for and what you focus on and focus most critically on build that, build a great company, build a business you're incredibly proud of, build one that grows, that has options, um, and then pick the one that's right for you. Because there, there are certain businesses that I think really are well suited to the public markets and other ones that are not like ones that have inherent volatility in their business models or lots of cyclicality and all kinds of like just the market doesn't like that kind of instability and doesn't like that lack of in, lack of predictability in a business. It can still work, 
Um, but it's a lot harder and it's, it's one of those, how do you, how do you want to spend your time? Do you want to spend your time explaining to people why they shouldn't care about your volatility? Or do you want to spend your time building an amazing business that gets beyond that volatility? That totally makes sense. Again, I think that it's, uh, it's kind of a mystical thing for some people and they don't yeah. realize that they're going to have to talk to a lot of analysts and a lot of capital sources who are going to ask tough questions. These people aren't in love with the company. In fact, they, you know, they're looking to not be made a fool of, and they're going to ask tough questions that maybe a lot of these CEOs are not used to being asked. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and a part in, in managing it is part of your job, like a yeah. real part of your job. And I think there's a, there's also a, for some people, there's just a view. Well, I don't have to spend that much time on it. Um, and if you're Jeff Bezos and you made it very clear from the start that you weren't going to spend much time on it, you could, you can probably pull some of that off, but you know, <laughs> the vast majority of people aren't Jeff Bezos and especially first time CEOs or lots of first IPOs are just not as smooth and just not as easy um, from a company perspective. And the expectations are super high. So it's just, you know, that you can, you can time box it and you can manage it, but it is not, it is not free um, by any stretch. There's economic costs in the day to, business day to day. And then there are very real um, investment of time and energy costs um, into making, you know, making a successful run as, as a public company CEO. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Groupon. I mean, sure. it, I, you know, there aren't a lot of, uh, you know, I guess you call them consumer internet companies with as much name recognition as Groupon. So, you know, you are a public company CEO for a long time, including in part in the pandemic. What, what looking back on your experiences there, what would you say stands out about, you know, the issues of leadership, uh, forecasting, planning, culture, what kinds of things you know, come to mind when you're looking at your experience back with Groupon? Yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a steep learning curve and, and not, not the easiest entry, but I, I tell a lot of people like your first CEO job is probably going to suck. Um, it's going <laughs> to be hard. You're not going to get the best. You're not going to get like the red carpet one rolled out for you. Um, so yeah, I had to, I had to, I had to learn a lot fast in that space. And I think a, a lot of what I had to learn was was how to how to really balance being a an operator in a business that needed a, like very high touch operational capabilities in the CEO, um, super high detail orientation with being able to level up in a way and and paint a picture of where we're headed um, not just internally but externally. Um, so I had a lot to learn on that side for sure. It was trial by fire, especially in a period where on on my second day as CEO I announced a massive restructuring. Um, so I, I made that stretch probably harder, uh, than, than it technically could have been, but it needed to happen. Um, and so I, I had to, I had to manage that external piece with, with adding disruption and a huge amount of change in a very short period of time, um, which had distinct pressures on me, but it also had a, a lot of, of impact on the folks around me and in the, you know, around the table at the company. And I think it more than anything, it, it, that time, like it just it, more than any time in my career, it just reiterated how critical it was to have just incredible people. Um, and you, you know, you mentioned it with the the CEO skills. Um, they're highly, I think they make you highly fungible if you're humble enough to surround your people that are surround yourself with people that are 
so much better than you at so many other things. Like you have to have that willingness to just have someone run circles around you and lots of other places so that you can, you know, you can do things that they can't. Um, and so I think that reiterated to me where, where I had weaknesses there um, around, around in the team, there was just no room for it. Um, so I think that was probably the single biggest takeaway was just the amount of pressure that, that that transition period and all the things that we had to do in that period of time put on that next, on that next layer um, in the company and then how good that layer had to be to be able to navigate it successfully, communicate change and manage change successfully, execute every single day with huge amounts of noise and where the scoreboard wasn't your friend. Um, and so I think that took a lot and probably thing I'm most proud of during during my time there is is actually establishing that kind of team that could could execute at scale and could execute with real degree of difficulty, um, put up numbers and get the company on a better stretch while building culture. I mean, our um, you know, everything from whether it was glass door scores to to approval ratings and all that sort of stuff and our internal pulse surveys, I think we it, it should, it didn't, it, it was incongruent. It shouldn't have matched um, if you were to look at the scoreboard externally. And I think a lot of that was just due to the leaders around the table. We had some incredible people. Um, I think now probably of the 11 or 12 people uh, on, my, on my leadership team, I think there's eight now that are CEOs of other companies. Um, so it just speaks volumes to, to the criticality of having incredible folks around the table. Thanks for tuning in. If you want more info on the show, please visit blockandtackleshow.com. And you can also email me at carl at blockandtackleshow.com. Thanks for tuning in.